My name is Anthony Fatsis and welcome to the What The Finance podcast, where we interview finance, trading, investing experts to help you understand current market trends and learn about the intricacies of new and existing assets. Hello and welcome What The Finances to another episode of the What The Finance podcast, where we talk to experts to help gain a greater understanding about what is happening in the world of finance, investing and markets. On today's podcast, I'm happy to welcome John Williams. Williams, who's the founder of Shadow Stats, which is a website that calculates the actual inflation rates that we're experiencing, which is, I think, more important than ever. So, John, thanks for joining the podcast today. And I mean, thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. So, I guess my first question is, you know, what is wrong with our current measurement of inflation? Well, uh, the original inflation measure, or at least as it was back in uh, the early 1980s, as it was estimated, it worked out pretty well. Um, the problem was, and in fact, it was just about 42 years ago, uh, coming into, the, say, 1980, uh, you had a very high rate of uh, consumer price index, uh, up around 12% year over year. And uh, that Worked its way worked its way into the cost of living adjustment for Social Security. The problem for the Congress was that uh, high cost the next year for uh, Social Security payments and and uh, took a dent out of the uh, the budget or uh, increased the budget deficit. And what they started uh, to consider, and what in fact what they did within the next year or so, was to recalculate, um, reformulate the consumer price index. To reduce it, so that it would reduce, it would give you a lower cost of living adjustment for purposes of calculating uh, uh, the CPI, the CPI for uh, cost of living adjustments on, on Social Security. Uh, the first big change they made was in the area of housing. Uh, consider that uh, the uh, you know you have your housing costs with your heating and. Uh, taxes, maintenance, whatever, uh, the uh, government, instead of breaking it all out, decided they'd uh, translate that into what they call a, a consumer's equivalent rent, home, a homeowner's equivalent rent. What, what, would, what, would you, what you would pay yourself to rent your house from yourself. And then the, that, that's, that was the measure. And then the uh, actual inflation number was, as the government would estimate it, how much would you, you would increase the rent on, on the house to yourself uh, month to month, which was nonsense. I mean, just the, the numbers were heavily gimmicked, and it knocked at the time, I think it knocked about one and a half percentage point off the whole entire, the entire aggregate CPI index. They made other changes over time. Um, another component, it helps to understand a little bit what was behind the, the, the concept here of the consumer price index. As they, as they defined the CPI, abbreviation for the consumer price index, was the was a measure of the cost of living of maintaining a constant standard of living. Um, okay, that it's, it sounds fair enough. And that's what people bought when they said, okay, yep. I'll go along with that, and I'll take that kind of an, adjust, an adjustment on my Social Security plan. Well, they didn't uh, maintain the constant standard of living concept too long. As Alan Greenspan later argued it, uh, if um, 
steak gets too expensive, people will buy more chicken. And that's true. But that's not maintaining a constant standard of living as far as I'm concerned. And as far as most people are concerned. So the, they, they, they started putting in substitution biases, variety of things. It knocked, uh, at this point in time, aggregate um, almost eight percentage points off what the headline CPI would have been. Um, and that's, uh, well, I, I took offense at it. It was not the deal that the government had made with the American people. And uh, I published economic statistics, and I wanted people to have as good a measure of what was happening as possible. So the government is open about what they did. Uh, they estimated how much it would change the CPI when they made those changes. So I just reverse engineered that. And in terms of uh, where things would stand today, and this is based on the uh, uh, headline CPI. And this is pretty high. In fact, it's higher. It's the highest. You know, We've had a streak of high year-over-year uh, -year inflation uh, the last uh, several months to peak so far. And it's going to get go higher from where it is now. It was 9.1% back in June. That's the government's number. And uh, that's the highest since... Uh, back before when they changed the CPI. If, we, if they were reliving the, the world as it was then, they might look to uh, recalculate the CPI to bring it down again because it's getting too high. Um, I think that resulted in a headline cost of living adjustment around 8.7% 8, 8 or such. But that was just the, 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 month, the latest monthly one was 8.2% year over year. My estimate is 16.4%. Had they not made the changes back in uh, starting in the in 1982. Instead of seeing a year-over-year -year change of uh, 8.2, you'd be at 16.4 right now, and uh, the, the the cost of living would uh, it would be up uh, around 17 percent in terms of its adjust adjustment. But that's not where it is. Yeah, well, that's that's amazing to think. So, and I know it's only that they're constantly changing CPI almost every year and how they calculate it. And you know, I think I heard something where it used to be that there was like champagne in this basket, and now they change it to prosecco. And there's these like Oreos, and then the weight of the Oreos decreases. So even though they're you know the price is the same, it's actually decreasing. And as you mentioned there, the quality of life, which is really the main issue. Yes, indeed it is. One thing I found of interest, though, is that uh, oh, the precious metals, you look at gold, for example, uh, it actually tends to move with the actual CPI, not the gimmick CPI. Um, I, I have my index that, again, estimates the way it used to be. Um, and um, what, one thing I did was I, I set my index the same as the government's index. Prior to 1982, it's the same same level. Just after 1982, my index continues going the way the old CPI would have gone, where the government's number goes with the, the new CPI. And if you look at the what what happens over time, where the series split, the government CPI sort of flattens out on a relative basis. Mine goes up exponentially. And uh, I plotted that against gold, the price of gold, just the index levels and the price of gold. I didn't even have to change the scale, which shocked me, pure coincidence. But if you look at the headline CPI index, its base year 
is 1982-84 equals 100. I have the same base year on mine. And uh, if you go back to 1971, when Nixon floated the dollar, uh, back then the the CPI averaged about 79, again, as, uh, against its 100 base. Uh, but the price of gold is also at $79 an ounce. So what you find out is you plot, as you plot them over time, uh, the price of gold starts following my index higher um, as we get as we get past the government's number. The, go the government's number again goes off like this. The, go the line goes up like this, and the price of gold goes up like that. Now, the relationship's not perfect, but it's still holding up over there. Now, right now, the gold is artificially depressed. It should be over $2,000 an ounce. You've had some very unusual things happening in that in that circumstance. But over time, give it time, it averages out at the same level as, as the real, the, the actual CPI. It's a, it's a hedge against inflation, maintains the purchasing power of your assets. And it's been doing that for millennia. You could buy the same amount of, uh, you could buy a loaf of bread in ancient Rome for the same, same amount of gold that you could buy a loaf of bread for in uh, New York today. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to think like that. So I guess if we go back to inflation, uh, and then we'll get to gold a little bit later, um, in terms of what we're experiencing now, is there any other times in history when we've experienced it? Do you have to go back to the 80s, or what, what's your thoughts on that? Well, it's. I mean, what's happening today is an unusual circumstance. Uh, what's driving the inflation is uh, basically money supply. The Fed, Fed panicked and flooded the system with liquidity, uh, and, that, and that, that's what's that's the primary factor behind it. You have some uh, distortion, supply distortions with uh, with with, it, with the pandemic, uh, and uh, I mean, there's some things like that. But the primary thing is is in, is inflation, and um, right now. If you look at that uh, headline inflation uh, and gold, again, that's the gold is the what protects you against the again against the inflation. Well, what I'm what, what I'm uh, suggesting is that if you go back before 1982, you have the real inflation rate, and you'll find that that is a, a pretty good. Uh, uh, you plot it over time. It, I've, it, it, it goes back fairly well as far back as you have have numbers that are meaningful. I mean, you can go back a you know a century with it, and you, you'll still see that you'll you'll see you'll see the uh, a, a pretty close relationship. Now, the extreme inflation that we're seeing now is somewhat uh, somewhat different, but again, uh, gold and inflation uh, tend to move hand in hand. Yeah, so really, maybe not day to day, but you know, average it out over a year or such. Take it as a as a long term hedge. I mean, you you may have a period of time. I mean, if you look at my numbers against gold. There are year there's a year where perhaps you see gold go up like that, and my numbers like this, or my number goes up like that, and gold's going like that. But watch them over the over the you know a year or two, and you'll find that they they stay pretty much together. Yeah, it's interesting. So, um, so I'm going to ask another question about history. If we think about 2010 to 2020, 
that was a period where central banks were struggling to find inflation as measured by their CPI. Was it as bad as they were measuring or were we actually experiencing real inflation according to that 1980s measure? The, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the 1980s measure was a pretty good measure. Mm. It seemed to, it, it was it was as honest as uh, I've, I've, I've seen the government put out. It's uh, when they, uh, when they uh, went beyond that measure, uh, when they said when, when they went to adjust it, and that was in 1982. So I mean, as it stood before 1982, I think that would, it was a fair balance of, of inflation. And 19, after 1982, they made changes. Had they defined it like that initially, and you'd measured that that way over time, then that would have been the measure. But they changed the way they measured it, and, and significantly. And then they continued to measure change in it. It was, and they changed the measure deliberately to understate it for the purpose of cutting back on the cost of living adjustments uh, for Social Security. They were very open about that, and I, I, I think that's uh, that's wrong. Yeah, I, I agree definitely. So, um, you know, you, you mentioned how you're measuring the the real CPI as we experienced back then. Do you um, do, do you have any sort of indicators that you watch to potentially predict what that real CPI might be in the next six months or a year? Because I guess a lot of people are thinking we could enter a recession, and that could potentially be deflationary for the economy. So I'm not sure if you have any opinions on that matter. Well, it's the uh, uh, the, the same things that would affect the current headline CPI will affect the old traditional CPI as well. It's just at what level of magnitude. And uh, right now, the primary problem is not the economy, contrary to what the Fed says. The, the problem is uh, money supply growth. You go back to the when the pandemic hit uh, in uh, February of 2020, March of 2020, the Fed just floods the system with liquidity, pumps up the money supply. Uh, growth that has never, hasn't been seen before. Uh, in the uh, right now, well, they started playing around with their numbers as soon as they did that. And I've looked at an, at the money supply over time. The money supply is a pretty good predictor of, of inflation. It actually drives inflation. Um, the uh, uh, as as the number as they started to uh, report their headline money supply after they'd started to liquefy the system, uh, you starting, started to see a big jump in uh, what was then called M1, the, the narrowest measure of the money supply, which included basically uh, uh, currency in circulation and demand deposits, checking accounts. Um, that was soaring. Uh, and uh, they're reporting it weekly. So you've seen these weekly numbers. They didn't like that because it, it made people nervous about what was going to be happening to inflation. So they, at least that's the way I read it. That they didn't state that as the reason for what they did, but what they did almost immediately was they uh, redefined uh, the money supply and uh, delayed the weekly reporting and uh, came out with late, later monthly reports that are still lagged. I mean, we're getting uh, uh, t- uh, tomorrow. We'll be getting the money supply numbers for September 
and here we are at the end of October. So it's it's delayed. You the, you don't get to see what they reported. Um, but the uh, the the money supply, the M1, which is a narrow liquid part, that's the important part from the standpoint of inflation, because when people go out to buy things, they go to the grocery store, want to get some new clothes or whatever. Usually they're they're they're, buy, they're using their cash or checking account. They're not liquidating long-term time deposits to to to, to do that. Um, so what they did was they redefined M1 and added in savings accounts, which previously had just been um, the, the the bulk of money supply M2, which is the now the aggregate money supply number had been for a while before. Um, but it's a little little less liquid. They said, oh, so we've changed things in terms of reserve requirements. So it's just as liquid now. But the average guy doesn't look at look at it that way. They still look at they're still spending money in cash and out of their checking accounts. The, the most liquid measure, headline measure, of the money supply used to be M1. And that's basically uh, cash in circulation and checking accounts. Then you had savings accounts that were added on that. That gave you the broad M2. Uh, they used to have an M3 measure, which I still follow, which has even broader, deeper accounts. But M2 right now is the headline money supply. And at that, at, as this whole crisis started, um, M1, which is the most liquid measure, I now call it basic M1. Uh, my definition simply is the cash and, and the checking accounts. Um, it was, uh, and there was 18% of, uh, of M2. And uh, now after redefinitions, it's a definition that's up around 88% of M2. So you don't see, you don't see the flight to liquidity that's taken place. Extraordinary flight to liquidity, greatest flight to liquidity that we've seen in 42 years. And um, what you'd see is the, uh, if you look at the money supply numbers since the onset of the crisis, um, M2, the broadest measure, uh, has has been uh, spiked with uh, the Fed uh, uh, Fed easings and such, and it's equivalent. The, the amount that M2 is going up by is about the equivalent of six years of of uh, stimulus instead of two, uh, but the old M1 is 23 years of stimulus uh, instead of instead of two, and that's because the cash has flown there. People have been buying it uh, uh, out of out of their checking accounts, their cash, and um, overall, it's up 100 against its pre-pandemic peak, which is the way I, I measure it. Because of the, the big ballooning that you had after after the uh, after the pa- pandemic started, uh, it's up 123 percent from where it was before. We never had anything like that before. That's what's driving the the uh, inflation. It's that surge in the in the money in the, in the money supply, particularly the most liquid end, the the cash and the and the demand demand deposits, the checking accounts. Now the Fed is. Uh, uh, tapering, uh, cutting back, uh, trying to cut things back, but uh, the um, the the old narrow M1 still is growing, and uh, M2 is is basically flat. Um, you haven't seen any cutback there, and again, all the surge went in that first year. Extraordinary growth. I mean, again, depending on the measure, six to uh, twenty-three years or such worth of stimulus. 
until they cut back on the money supply. You're not going to pull back on the inflation. Now, if you listen to the Fed, uh, they're addressing the, the inflation problem by raising interest rates. And if you had a booming economy, that might help. Over a booming economy, overheating economy, as the Fed chairman likes to describe it, uh, that will drive prices higher. That's one way that you get inflation. And uh, so that if you raise interest rates, you want to kill an economy, raise interest rates. That'll slow the economy. And if and if it's an overheating economy, that'll help to slow the inflation. But that's not the problem with the, infl- with the inflation here. The inflation problem here is the money supply growth. The Fed's not cutting that. So right now they're they're still keeping the inflation, the uh, money supply, at extraordinary levels that is uh, uh, fueling the inflation, and they're raising interest rates to kill a non-overheating economy. The economy is in terrible shape, so we're, we're, we're heading into a recession, and we've still got bad inflation, and it's not going to get much better. In fact, I think it's going to get worse um, the next uh, six months to a year. Yeah, it's interesting. So. Is there any? How would the Fed reduce M1? I guess would they? Is that just by stopping Q, QE and uh, increasing the rate of QT, or is there a way they can do that? Well, they they it's tight. They they take cash out instead of put cash cash in, mm. and uh, they're not doing that. What they're what they're doing is uh, raising interest rates, and that does not reduce the money supply. Yeah, it's scary, scary to think. So you mentioned before how gold is quite correlative to, I guess, the the real inflation as as they measured in nineteen eighties. Are there any other commodities or even other assets that you see have a positive relationship like that? So maybe silver or anything else. Well, uh, hard assets, gold and silver, are traditional hedges there. Um, and that, I mean, if you're looking to hedge against inflation, that would be what I would look at. And I would look at uh, uh, physical holding of the uh, gold and silver. I wouldn't uh, put it away in a safe deposit box, per se. It may be dangerous to say. But I think we've got a very dangerous time ahead of us here uh, where you could have runaway inflation. It it effectively gets out of control. I think the economy is going to get a lot weaker. And if you run into a real inflation problem, something that begins, you start to uh, see more than uh, uh, eight, 9% inflation get up to 20%, 30%, uh, you, as, as they reported. Um, the uh, flight to gold, I would expect, would intensify irrespective of whatever's happening to the price of gold right now, where it's, it's so uh, low against where it's been. In, in recent history, I don't I don't believe that is a market fundamental, very suspect as to how the gold prices are holding down that low in this current circumstance. I think someone's playing with it, but I can't show that. Um, it is, uh, if you have, uh, if, if gold becomes the, uh, uh, the, the flight to quality asset, which it is, uh, it's the type of thing that governments in the past have banned, have confiscated. They've done all sorts of things, and uh, that's why I would I'd be inclined to yeah, maintain personal ownership of it. Uh, that's just my own personal preference. 
I don't, uh, I don't, I don't trust the government here. Yeah, it's it's concerning thing all could happen. So, John, thank thank you so much for your time. I've really appreciated uh, the interview. So, I guess my last question is: uh, What is one message you'd like people to take away from our conversation? Go on your gut gut instincts. If you think the economy is getting bad, you're probably right. If uh, you think inflation is worse than the uh, government's reporting, probably right. Uh, it is uh, there are ways of protecting yourself and the, the precious metals in particular uh, are areas that will do it. Re, uh, again, real assets, real estate is an inflation hedge. Um, but if you if, and it's I mean, I have no problems with that, except you may have periods of Ill, Ill liquidity. And if uh, you get into social unrest, which could happen in an extraordinary circumstance, I'm not predicting it, but these are extraordinary times that are ahead of us. It's uh, it's not portable. So I, I look at hold it, physical gold and silver, and in the form of um, coins that people recognize, not great numismatic value, but bags of old silver or you know, standard mint coins. Uh, for the reason that uh, if you're using it in a barter circumstance, let's say we end up in a hyperinflation, and I think that is a real risk. Uh, you might want to uh, take a you, you take a, a a bag of silver coins to the supermarket to get your to get your food or to trade with a farmer. And uh, if you have something that's recognizable as a coin, people will recognize you know, if that's silver or gold, as opposed to saying, yeah, I want to assay that before I uh, trade with you. That's just a, a quick aside there. But uh, uh, I, I would look at the precious metals as the store of wealth here, uh, preserve your purchasing power over time and uh, yeah, use definitely. Sense. Sorry, yeah, it definitely seems like that's uh, that, that's the way to go. So, yep, John, thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if you want to tell the audience maybe where they can find more of your work, shadow stats. I know, you know, I know you released a newsletter there as well, so I'm not sure if you want to talk about that a bit. My website is shadowstats.com. Um, I put out a newsletter. I actually have a new commentary coming out in the next week or so. Uh, I think people will find of interest. Uh, I also have on my homepage uh, what's called a daily update section. That's open to the public. You just uh, read down it and uh, look at the different areas that you have interest in. Whenever there are number, new numbers, it's updated there. And if you're a subscriber, uh, you'll get a uh, an email with those uh, updates and, and uh, graphs. Yeah, perfect. I'll put that all in the description below. But yeah, John, thanks so much for your time. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me on your show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe so you're notified when new podcasts are released. I hope you're leaving with some great value about investing, trading and finance. See you on the next show.